What's up, everyone? You're listening to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. I'm your host, Mason Kern, joined by staff reporter Jacob Runner and publisher Chris Cartman. Jacob, we'll start with you, man. How you doing? I'm good, Mason. I, you know, it's, it's exciting to actually be back on the podcast because it's been a while with, you know, everything going on in the pandemic. So uh, I'm, I'm excited to be back. Yeah, we're making your, your reintroduction here to the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Jacob, we're glad to have you. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. You know, there's a lot going on in uh, ASU world and uh, sports in general, and I'm enjoying it. Right. Just because it's now officially the offseason for the three major ASU sports doesn't mean the news has subsided. And speaking of which, Sun Devil Source was the first to report that ASU baseball fired their head coach, Tracy Smith, on Monday, June 7th. Tracy Smith led the program for seven seasons. In that time, he accumulated the lowest win percentage of any baseball coach in ASU history. And the team got bounced from the first round of the playoffs. And this news came just hours after ASU's plane landed following their loss to Fairfield, Chris. Yeah, uh, these these things tend to happen very quickly. Uh, we had spoken with Ray Anderson. You can check out the Q&A and some of the reporting that we did on that prior to ASU going to that Texas regional where uh, beat Fairfield before losing to Texas and Fairfield again um, uh, in their second game um, and get knocked out. And it, it, we knew that this team was probably pretty limited based upon losing th- its three top pitchers really early all to uh, Tommy John surgery and something that ASU's coaches talked a lot about pretty consistently through the season. But Ray Anderson made really clear in his decision uh, to fire Tracy Smith, which as you said, we, we did first report uh, within about two hours of, of, of ASU returning from uh, Austin, Texas, um, that excuses and reasons and rationalizing is you know, not really relevant uh, to him when you've had seven years. Um, Definitely true that ASU got unlucky. They had their best team uh, under Tracy Smith during the COVID year, which was uh, canceled prematurely after about a quarter of the way in, if that, maybe 20%. Um, Things might have been a lot different had they been able to play out that season and have a chance to make a, a deeper postseason run this year didn't seem all that realistic. And I would argue that they did probably about as well as could have been expected this season, but just the totality of seven years at this point, it's really difficult to make an argument that um, the results were up to par for ASU baseball. And no matter what the reasons are, it just Ray Anderson decided it was time to pull the plug and go in a different direction. And, and I would add to what Chris just said, and Chris, you really explained it pretty much perfectly, is, is with Ray Anderson speaking after he made this decision on Monday, he said very specifically that the COVID year and then the injuries this year were certainly a part of his calculus when it came to making this decision. But he said that it was worth noting that everybody has gone through somewhat similar, if not identical challenges to what Tracy Smith had to go through. And I believe his almost exact quote was, it's the leader's job to get past that and to figure out a way to succeed despite certain challenges. And, and like every college baseball program, you know, the 2020 season was canceled due to COVID-19. 
in the pandemic. And then, you know, with the injuries, it is rare to lose your top three starting pitchers to the exact same injury in the same season. But the way Ray Anderson saw it, it was on Tracy Smith to be able to work past those challenges. And, and you know, like you said, Chris, he, he probably did do that along with the help of Jason Kelly and, and Michael Early. And we'll talk about more about that later. But I think they got past those challenges adequately for the circumstances this year. But like you said, in the totality of his career here, uh, it was certainly subpar in comparison to the, you know, the, the rich history of ASU baseball. And, and the fact of the matter is that one of the biggest things that Ray Anderson would be considering is where fan support is at with ASU baseball, which has historically been so successful. It's the bellwether program of the Sun Devils, um, just one of the nation's best programs historically, very clearly. Ray Anderson said that himself. Um, when he dismissed Tim Esme, that he says the top five program in the country, and maybe standards or expectations have slipped somewhat, even uh, as Ray Anderson might describe it now. But n- nonetheless, what happened is many, if not a large, the majority of ASU's fans had lost uh, confidence in Tracy Smith and even sort of um, did not support the program or we're not as invested in the program. And just what happens, in at least my opinion, is you reach sort of a tipping point of that, uh, upon which it's, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to overcome it. Like you almost have to uh, exceed um, sort of the average expectations over a period of some years to make up for what that sentiment has developed to be. And the last couple of years, you know, partly unlucky, but also, um, you know, at that, at, at, at when you're five, six years into a program, you have to be able to, you know, overcome some of that, um, you know, misfortune or, and, and things. And, and so Tracy Smith is, is gone and it'll be very interesting to kind of see how the rest of this whole thing unfolds as ASU um, looks for a replacement and tries to retain, uh, what is a quite young roster with probably 80 to 90% of its top players capable of returning. Right. And Tracy Smith was a pretty polarizing figure for ASU baseball. Some fans, many fans even wanting him fired earlier than this taking place. I mean, his teams in seven years, they went 201 and 155 overall 87 and 92 in the PAC 12. Again, that winning percentage is the worst among all ASU baseball coaches in program history. The team never finished top two in the Pac-12, never did not make a super regional appearance despite four opportunities and their 10th, it's the 10th consecutive year that they haven't made a super regional. So Tracy Smith gone. And Chris, you kind of tee it up, a very young roster. Jacob, in terms of retention, I mean, after a coaching change, that usually might see some roster turnover. What, What are the Sun Devils looking like entering next season? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's really the key here. And, and Ray Anderson spoke about that on Monday. He said that the way that the roster is currently constructed, whoever does take over the program as its next head coach has an opportunity to inherit a roster of young, talented players. And that really is the case. I mean, the offense was the second youngest lineup in terms of overall at-bats uh, by percentage in Division One baseball, only second to Virginia Tech and the youngest to actually make it to the postseason. And that's significant because these players really were good. It was led by Ethan Long, who was a collegiate baseball news uh, All-American this year. 
hit 16 home runs, the second most by a freshman. Uh, and he wasn't the only one. Hunter Haas at third base, Joe Lampy in center field. Uh, both of them took home defensive, uh, all, all defensive Pac-12 team awards this season. Uh, at any given time, ASU started as many as six freshmen on the field. And that youth extended into its pitching, too. Uh, the bullpen, a lot of young players, freshmen, sophomores. Uh, next year, it'll still be fairly young, uh, just given how many freshmen participated this year. Plus, you have guys like Cooper Benson, Eric Tolman, uh, Boyd Vanderkoy, all of whom were out for the year due to Tommy John surgery. They're all expected to return uh, next year to be able to contribute after not really doing much this year. And that's significant. I mean, this is a roster that at the beginning of the season, I think a lot of people were projecting to be competitive, if not a favorite to compete for the Pac-12 title, and then, you know, make a run into the playoffs. And all of that was what contributed to Tracy Smith's eventual firing. So I would say that, you know, this roster is, if it stays together, uh, it's fairly talented and, and they just have the pieces to really succeed uh, if they can get the direction that they're looking for from the next head coach. The problem though, and, and uh, you know, we'll, we can dive into this now is that uh, it sounds like a big part of being able to keep this roster together is whether or not ASU is going to be able to retain hitting coach Michael Early and pitching coach Jason Kelly. Uh, the players have developed, you know, very close bonds with these two coaches they believe very heavily in what they're capable of doing in terms of their instruction, in their off-field development, in terms of, you know, some players have described it as turning them into from, from boys to men from a maturity standpoint. And, you know, uh, several players have voiced that they may not come back if those two coaches are not a part of the roster uh, next season. And so, you know, that's a, a something that whoever the next head coach will have to consider. It's something that the from an operational standpoint, Ray Anderson will have to consider in terms of who he's going to bring in. And it's clearly very important in order to keep this very young and talented roster together. You know, I just want to follow up on this because it's such an important part of this conversation, right? Um, in my history of covering ASU, I did not um, argue in a very public, explicit way for the firing of too many coaches. I did Rob Evans um, many years ago as a basketball coach say that it was time to move on from him a year or, or more, maybe before he was eventually fired. Uh, I thought it was very clear that the Dennis Erickson era, um, there were a lot of problems there and, and that that was petering out and, and they needed to change. But more recently than that, I think ASU fans know that I did not uh, advocate for the firing of either Todd Graham or uh, Herb Sendak. And one of the biggest, there's, there's a few reasons for that, but, but some of the most important reasons would be uh, related to the market-specific knowledge that these coaches um, acquire when they're on the job for some years that nobody really tends to have when they first get hired um, and the value of that. And then the second part, the second most important thing I would say is what happens to rosters following coaching changes with transfers and early, you know, departures or, or guys deciding to leave for the NBA or the NFL or uh, Major League Baseball draft or whatever the case may be um, as a result in a way that can really set back any momentum that has been gathering uh, to the point of those uh, those firings. And so 
um, uh, like I have said prior to Tracy Smith's dismissal that I wasn't a, um, you know, I wasn't going to be out there writing columns about ASU needing to fire Tracy Smith. And a big part of that is that I recognize, as Jacob just said there, that the roster is relatively talented. Like ASU, uh, a, a fully healthy ASU team this year probably would have been a second or third place team, maybe even a league champion in the Pac-12. Um, last year could have been a, a league champion. And they've had really high draft picks, Spencer Torkelson, number one overall, of course, and, and others. Um, and this uh, team has a bunch of guys that I think should end up being drafted in the top, you know, uh, 10 to 20 percent of the the their own respective uh, drafts um, when they're eligible for that. So and 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 also recruiting has seemed to be lining up reasonably well. And so you look at, for example, right, uh, Spencer Torkelson said that, um, you know, he has in the past said you know, the importance of Michael Early, ASU's uh, hitting coach for the last four or five years, uh, in his decision to go to ASU. And Ethan Long has credited uh, Early as being an instrumental figure in his development, and other players have as well. Uh, and the you know, Early's younger and a little bit more dynamic and involved on a day-to-day basis with working with some of these guys and hitters can be kind of finicky and you, you develop certain kind of, um, you know, rhythms and ways of doing things and people who understand your idiosyncrasies and mechanical sort of challenges and deviating from that is a concern that some players are going to have understandably. And so um, at the same time, what you, on the flip side of this is, uh, it, it generally doesn't work out all that well when you tell whoever your new coach is going to be, hey, you have to keep this guy or that guy, and you only have a few uh, paid assistant coaches, right? So uh, because those coaches are going to – they've worked with them, with guys they're really comfortable with, and then they know and have a great rapport, and they, they those coaches typically tend to understand exactly what they're looking for and why and how, and they have recruiting ideology that's very established and all those things have to sort of be learned and you have to get a feel for working for somebody else. And so there's, there's either way there's challenges, right? A lot of coaches may not want to be told, Hey, we, you need to keep this guy. And uh, they may view that, you know, skeptically about what my new boss may be like and some, some issues I may have working with him. Um, And then there's, you know, some adjustment phase period that could be problematic um, whereas, you know, uh, you could retain a coach and, you know, um, have some of those issues or not retain a coach and have issues with keeping guys on your roster and, or recruits that you have lined up. Cause remember a lot of guys are already locked and loaded in baseball, uh, recruiting two years or three years, um, ahead of when they actually end up graduating high school. So, um, that all of that is part of my considerations because you're probably either way going to have challenges that wouldn't have been the case had you retained Tracy Smith or any coach. Now, I fully understand that a lot of ASU fans feel like Tracy Smith, his ceiling was just too limited 
to where he wasn't going to be able to get ASU the success deep in playoffs with his management of pitching staffs or um, his in-game management and decisions or, you know, whatever the case may be. And so that is sort of the, the, the counterbalance to the things I'm talking about. And there is, you know, generally speaking, people are going to choose what's behind door number two if they're not that impressed by what they're looking at that was um, already revealed to them in the curtain uh, when the curtain was was lifted seven for the last seven years. And they're looking at that, right? They're going to take that, that, that unknown chance. And so this is where we're at. And I'm interested in seeing kind of like everybody else, how it's going to play out. And I would add to that, Chris, you know, and this is in our, our story when Tracy Smith was fired. This is within the story that we published immediately. Tracy did a really good job of bringing in high level talent. And that was highlighted by the fact that they led the country among high school or college teams and players drafted in the very limited 2020 draft. He's had off the top of my head, it was 30 prospects drafted over the course of his tenure, which is not at all a small number, uh, including, like you mentioned, Spencer Torkelson, the first overall pick, Hunter Bishop, the 10th overall pick the year before that. And, and again, and you said this, there are players on the roster now who might not profile as top 10 picks, but who certainly profile as anywhere between late first round and between you know one and fifth round type players. And there are players coming in who have committed to the program who profile similarly to that as well. So I would say that, right now ASU is in a precarious situation in that they, if they lose some of these players, it would be a pretty significant talent drop-off from where the program is at right now to what it could be. Uh, and, and that might be different than another situation where a coach gets fired because it's not like ASU fired Tracy Smith from a point of failure. It was a point of failure relative to the history of the program, but you know, relative to other programs in the country, ASU was doing quite well. It was still making the tournament. It was still well above 500 overall, uh, you know, and this year with significant injuries, it still found a way to win 32 of 52 games. So it wasn't like they were truly failing relative to other teams in the country. And there's a reason for that. It's the players who are currently on the roster and it will make it significantly more difficult if a lot of those players choose to leave and the pressure that they feel to do so might depend quite heavily on whether or not the next coach decides to keep certain people on his staff. And like you said, Chris, that, is that's where this gets challenging because coaches often don't want to do that when they take over a program, they truly want to take over and make their own decisions. Well, we hold on. If hold on a second, if, if I may just kind of, you know, add to what you're saying and, or provide a counterpoint, I think a lot of ASU fans would say that, um, that ASU kind of recruits itself in a lot of ways based upon the historical success and, um, you know, and other factors, uh, regionality and, and, and whatnot. Um, and so, you know, it may be true that Tracy Smith uh, recruited pretty effectively. People would say, well, that means that he's not developing that talent enough or making the most at least of that talent in terms of what it yields in a baseball team. Um, you know, and then the other aspect is that ASU should be the type of team that would be attractive uh, from a transfer destination when you get rid of the transfer, you know, sit out rule this year in a way that may be able to infuse a roster and offset some departures that you may have related to coaching turnover. But absolutely, we are on the same page, Jacob, um, that 
uh, there, there definitely can be a setback, especially if they do not retain Michael Early. I think that is very conceivable. I would say, of course, that uh, covering a lot of teams for a lot of years now, it, there's this, this is normal. This is like commonly said that important assistant coaches and the relationship that they have, and then are like going to lead to reconsiderations of staying at ASU. And sometimes those guys are convinced to stay uh, after coaches come in. It, it, you know, I don't, it's hard to say like a percentage or anything like that, but a lot of times um, some of the, the, the people who are, you know, most concerned, they end up having their sort of feelings assuaged and they uh, do stay. So, but, you know, again, we're going to be covering it and reporting on all, all this stuff as, as um, this whole process of finding a new coach and then what happens subsequently plays out. Right. And Ray Anderson said the search for a new head coach for ASU baseball would start immediately and it would be deliberate. We have a story coming out later today on sundevilsource.com, or by the time you're listening to this, it may already be up a coaching hot board. And there's more than a dozen prospective candidates that we at Sun Devil Source have compiled, people we think make sense for ASU baseball's head coaching vacancy, but may not actually be under consideration by Ray Anderson. And we've classified these in several different categories, which we view as the most realistic from which the actual coach will be hired. So Jacob going over kind of some of these categories, uh, starting with our first one ties to ASU. Yeah. So let me jump in. I just want to say like, we're, I'm going to sort of outline, I think what these categories, why these categories are, what they are and before Jacob goes over some of the, you know, prospective possible candidates, the ASU angle, uh, every time anybody gets fired at a, at a school, the alumni fans are like, Hey, what about so-and-so who was a great Sun Devil or insert school and, you know, understands the ASU baseball at a really high level innately. Right. So, um, there's going to be these obvious sort of names that are always talked about in such situations. And there's two or three that ASU fans have really zeroed in on for obvious reasons as Jacob will go over. Yeah. I, we, and, and like you mentioned, Mason, we're starting with people who have ASU ties and, and that starts with former ASU head coach, Pat Murphy. Uh, I mean, People are calling for, for him to potentially make a comeback to ASU. He is the second winningest head coach in, in Sun Devil history after 15 years with the program from 1995 to 2009. Um, we evaluate, and Chris, if you want to go into this more, you can as well. Uh, we kind of evaluate the chances of Pat Murphy coming back to ASU is very slim. Uh, he is in his 60s now. Uh, the reason he left ASU came after he was under investigation from the NCAA for several violations, which included student-athlete employment and recruiting violations and bringing somebody back who left in that light uh, might not be the move that the school chooses to make. But, you know, nonetheless, he was extremely successful. He uh, made it to the postseason in 10 of 12 seasons. Uh, he was he made it to the College World Series level, super regional level very regularly. Uh, his son, Kai Murphy, is currently on the team. He'll be a sophomore uh, next year. So, you know, Pat Murphy definitely has reasons to potentially get a phone call, but it, it, we evaluate that to be extremely unlikely. Yeah, go over the other candidates, and then I'll, I'll give my thoughts. Sure. 
Uh, so the other two that we have are similar in that they both used to play for Arizona State. The first is Willie Bloomquist. Uh, I think if you look at the, the one name that has come up fairly routinely with ASU fans, it is Bloomquist. Uh, he played for the program from 1997 to 1999, was among the most successful and, and really still is players to ever play for ASU. He's still the only player to ever record back-to-back 100-hit seasons. He was a first-team All-American. Uh, then went on to have a 14-year Major League Baseball career and currently works in the front office with the Arizona Diamondbacks and has been around the uh, ASU program. You know, he's worked on the broadcasts. He's done some, some player advising uh, over the last several years. And, and you know what? He probably could lead the program and would be interested if the job was offered to him. Similarly, there's Dustin Pedroia, who falls into the same, you know, alumni of the alumnus of the, of the program category, uh, long major league career. Many would argue that he probably has a case to go to the Hall of Fame for his career in major league baseball. And these are guys that people like because of their knowledge of how to win. They were a part of the quote unquote glory days for ASU baseball. But then you also have to consider that ASU is looking to return and very quickly to the super regional, if not the college world series level within the first several years of a head coach. And these guys, Bloomquist and Pedroia have zero head coaching experience. Yeah. I, I just think it's very unlikely that ASU goes this route for um, a few reasons. So primarily uh, Michael Crow, the ASU president was um, in his capacity when Pat Murphy, you know, was lost his job. There was a lot of embarrassment around um, you know, NCAA violations and things that sort of transpired. And even though it's a new athletic director, I just find it highly unlikely that ASU would would go that route. Dustin Pedroia of the three of the three with ASU ties makes the most sense. But even that, I think, is very unlikely given um, what have been the track records of Ray Anderson and Michael Crow, which is somebody that has uh, head coaching experience at some level of prominence. So very unlikely. Moving on to our next category, Jacob, established power five head coaches. Yeah. So once again, um, uh, this is something that is in the historical um, sort of reputation of what uh, Ray Anderson and, and Michael Crow look for. Um, they, Tracy Smith was at Indiana and had been coaching a long time, but was also sort of ascendant, uh, at Indiana. Um, you know, Bobby Hurley was a big name and was being, you know, he was doing well at, at Buffalo. Um, you know, um, Herm Edwards obviously had been a NFL head coach. Uh, and was pretty established, even though he was kind of an outside the box hire in a lot of ways. My my the, the tendency of these people is to want to hire someone in flagship programs like ASU baseball who already is quite established and has a great uh, track record. So that's why these candidates, to me, maybe maybe not these particular names, but this type of candidate makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, and with that being said, our, our, our first person that we identified in this category is Michigan head coach Eric Bakich. Uh, he took over the program in 2013 and grew it very quickly. Uh, the Wolverines finishes the runner-up for the national title in 2019. He's made four NCAA tournament appearances and eight opportunities and is still only 43 years old. So, you know, it, it, he has not won a title 
uh, with a conference title with the Wolverines, uh, has finished third or higher in five of his eight full seasons uh, in the Big Ten. And, you know, it's just kind of one of those things where if he feels potentially buried within his conference and is just it's a prominent name, he would be able to move from Michigan to Arizona State, which just in terms of baseball recruiting is just a far easier place to recruit at. And like Chris said earlier in the podcast, ASU kind of recruits itself uh, when it comes to baseball. And and for those reasons, Backich uh, makes sense. And our second person is actually somebody who has not coached since 2018, but is extremely well established in the division one ranks. And that's former Oregon state coach, Pat Casey. Um, This kind of falls under the Pat Murphy category where the likelihood of this actually happening is, is slim for a few reasons. Uh, First, he has not coached since 2018 and this would involve bringing him out of retirement. Uh, You'll see a lot of ASU fans calling for his potential hire uh, just because of the track record won 900 games, uh, with Oregon State, where he was for 1995 to 2018. He won five Pac-12 championships, three national titles, 12 NCAA tournament appearances, including six to the College World Series. So, you know, it's a, it's a huge name. Uh, he's 62 years old, has been coaching for over 30 years, and the likelihood of potentially bringing him out of retirement, again, in our opinion, is, is very unlikely. I just want to say... Um... I saw like on, on Twitter, there was a, somebody said that uh, the candidates unlikely to be from, you know, the, the East or something. And that I was a little bit, that didn't really make a lot of sense to me because what happens when a, a job as prominent as ASU baseball comes open is candidates come out of the woodwork that you would not think about. And it doesn't just happen like immediately. Like, so people, let's look back to ASU basketball when Herb Sendek was hired. He had gone to, I think, five straight NCAA tournaments at NC State. That was a more prominent, that was viewed as a more prominent job, uh, much better facilities, better crowd, passion, uh, history, et cetera. But Herb Sendek was dissatisfied at, AS, at NC State because uh, you know, he felt like he wasn't supported enough by the administration and or boosters, et cetera, or maybe just the, the expectations were too high, which is what led him uh, via his agent to express interest in the ASU job and then ultimately get the job. Uh, that was a, you know, that was at the time viewed as a, a surprise that he would have that type of interest. So when you look at candidates, uh, anyone could, could jump, could uh, come out from the SEC or the ACC or anywhere in the country as that type of a person. And it may, and it may take days or longer for that to actually come to the sort of, you know, understanding of, of Ray Anderson. So uh, that's not rule out anyone. And then with Backich in particular, the Michigan coach, right? Ray Anderson already hired Tracy Smith out of the big 10. Um, you know, he was, you know, viewed as up and coming. He had taken multiple programs to NCAA tournament, you know, he was, but also sort of established in probably in his early to mid forties at the time, whatever it was, I, maybe it was like late forties at the time, I guess. Um, but Backich is from uh, the West coast originally. I look, look like he was born and raised in, in San Jose, went to San Jose community college. Um, so he kind of understands and may have even have interest in, the weather or the region Uh, he's 43 and maybe a guy like this looks at Michigan is like, okay, the weather's not great. I'm not going to ever be able to get 
a comparable level of, of talent that I could get at a place like ASU. The, the, you know, there's a lot of sort of reasons. Okay. So I, I think there's a good possibility that agents of guys who are already at established power five programs doing well, uh, but maybe feel like there's a, a higher level that they can get to at ASU in the Pac-12 as possible. And Backage is, is someone that just sort of makes a lot of sense and checks a lot of boxes in, in this regard. So Chris, in a similar vein, then we move to our next category, established Power 5 assistant coaches. Yeah, so I think this is unlikely because of what I said earlier about Ray Anderson and Michael Crow's tendencies, it, ASU baseball, uh, you know, the, the, the stewardship of that program is, is so important and, you know, experience matters a great deal to them and reputation as well. So I think it's unlikely, but then what happens in baseball is that you have these like ultra prominent, uh, coaches who are basically ready on day one to take over major programs because they've already really understand how all of that works at the place where they're already at um, under somebody who's typically been a long-term, uh, you know, like highest in the food chain type of a coach. So uh, can't rule it out. And that's why we're talking about some of the most obvious candidates as Jacob will go over. Yeah, and, and Chris, you mentioned how we evaluate the likelihood of, of the coach, the next ASU coach being picked from this category. And for that reason, we actually, in our first version, and I should add that this will be updated throughout this process. In our first version of the hot board, we only have one prominent assistant, uh, and that's Arizona assistant Nate Yeske. Uh, he is arguably one of the most prominent in the country. Uh, he's been with the Wildcats since 2019, and before that was with Oregon State for a very long time under Pat Casey. Uh, he was there from 2009 to 2019, uh, helped the Beavers win the national title in 2018. Uh, they made 10 of postseason appearances in his 11 seasons in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, he obviously has worked in a location being Oregon State that is very difficult to recruit, even for baseball with Oregon State being a, 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 a top-notch program. And uh, before that, he worked at UNLV as an assistant from 2005 to 2007. So this is a guy who has never been a head coach, but is a longtime assistant and has now done it at two back-to-back -back very prominent baseball schools, Oregon State, where he won a national title, and Arizona, where he's now currently uh, coaching in a super regional. In the Pac-12, in the Pac-12, right? So he understands the landscape, recruiting, the region, the conference. And there's a lot of in, uh, intrinsic value in that as well. Right. As we move on to our fourth category, Chris, successful non-Power 5 coaches. Yeah, this is very intriguing. Uh, and I, I think that there's um, a pretty good chance of somebody from this category emerging. Um, it, you know, there's guys who have been really successful, maybe even dominated their conference or been among the top two or three uh, for a long time in their conference. And coaches have, um, they have really easy, sellable type of records and resumes in this regard. And maybe not, you know, college world series per se, but, you know, getting to just very consistently being regional to super regionals, maybe an occasional uh, uh, World Series and um, guys who appear 
uh, outwardly to be really ready to make that next step and would be hungry and interested, of, of course, in a job like ASU. And that's really the perfect setup for our first candidate in this category. And that's Andrew Chekets, the head coach at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, he's currently or he's currently in his 10th season uh, with the Gauchos, has made five NCAA tournament appearances in nine opportunities, including a College World Series appearance in 2016. Uh, he won the Big West in 2019 with the Gauchos and was named the Big West Coach of the Year that year. Uh, just a name that is successful at the non-Power 5 level. He's won 330 games, lost 199. Uh, it's it just one of those guys where the record and the uh, resume in terms of, of playoff appearances uh, really stacks up well. And that works similarly for our next candidate, and, and that is Cliff Godwin, the head coach at East Carolina. Uh, his resume is extremely impressive. He's 43 years old. Uh, has led the Pirates to four 40-win uh, four seasons and six opportunities, back-to-back uh, -back American Conference regular season titles in 2019 and 2021, uh, including five trips to the NCAA tournament with three appearances in the Super Regional round, including this year. Uh, prior to East Carolina, his assistant coaching work is extremely impressive. Uh, he's made stops at Vanderbilt, Notre Dame, LSU, Central Florida, and Ole Miss. Uh, in 2014, he helped the Rebels reach the College World Series for the first time since 1972. Uh, no experience out West, so a lot of South uh, baseball, but one could argue that that is against the better competition when it comes to college baseball. And again, you know, the resume with Godwin is uh, extremely impressive. Uh, similarly, uh, Dan Hefner, the head coach at Dallas Baptist University, uh, he has just completely outpunched his weight class with, with Dallas Baptist 515 and 269 overall record, including a 120 and 55 mark in conference play. Uh, since Dallas Baptist joined the Missouri Valley conference in 2014, uh, it's finished in either first or second every single year uh, with conference titles in each of its last two seasons. Uh, DBU is currently competing in the super regional round. He just beat Oregon state. Uh, to advance there, he's made 10 NCAA tournament appearances and 13 opportunities and has led the Patriots to eight 40-win seasons. So this is a guy who really stands out uh, in this category and one that we evaluate ASU could potentially take a, a serious, serious look at, as do we do with this one, Andy Stankiewicz with uh, GCU. Uh, he is 300-216-2 overall uh, with the Lopes. He's in his 10th season right now. Uh, they just competed in their first NCAA tournament, but that can be deceiving because the, uh, the Lopes were not able to compete in the NCAA tournament uh, until 2018. They were not eligible. Uh, he was with the program when it moved up from Division Three to Division One in 2014 and has helped them uh, build the program to become a very strong competitor in the WAC. They've won it three times, including this season, uh, and he's extremely local. So he understands the landscape in Arizona, specifically in the Phoenix Tempe area is well acquainted with the high school and the high school players there. And so we evaluate Andy Stankiewicz to be a serious candidate for this job for several reasons, resume and proximity to ASU being one of them or two of them, excuse me. Moving on to our fifth category, Chris, the up and comers. Yeah. Um, so, you know, up and comers are you know, guys that we look like, they have a shorter resume of success, probably only been a head coach for several years or at least uh, at their current job. Um, 
And so they seems like it might be a little bit more of a flyer, but yet they're quickly appearing to be ascendant, could be at the power five level, could be at the next level. Usually they're going to be younger guys in their 30s or maybe early 40s. And, um, you know, we could see the possibility of someone like this. They don't really have any sort of negative blemishes on their track record. Uh, maybe they're already, you know, taking a school that hadn't been really all that good before their arrival and quickly turning that around. Yeah, we'll, we'll actually start this category with the youngest player on the hot board 1.0, if you will, and that's 34-year-old UC Irvine head coach Ben Orloff. Youngest coach. It, it, it wouldn't be that young for a player. Yes, young, youngest coach, 34 years old. Uh, in, in 2019, Orloff took over uh, the UC Irvine program. Uh, he finished in a tie for second in his first year in the Big West with a 17-7 and overall record and 37-17 and uh, record outside just in total that season. Uh, 2020 season obviously ended prematurely. And then this year, uh, the, you know, he, he's been excellent with UC Irvine. They won the Big West. Uh, they finished the year with a 43-18 and 18 overall record, made it to the regional round, and then actually pushed Stanford to a final elimination game to determine who would go on to the super regional round, which was somewhat unexpected. Uh, the biggest knock on Orloff is, is one, just a complete lack of experience at 34 years old. And he has never experienced anything outside of UC Irvine dating back to his playing days. He played at UC Irvine under Mike Gillespie, one of the greatest coaches in college baseball history. He was an assistant under Gillespie from 2014 to 2018 and then took over for Gillespie when he retired in 2019. So uh, it's just a lot of UC Irvine for Ben Orloff. But like Chris said earlier, the the length of the resume might not be super long, but what is on there has been uh, standout and impressive. And that brings us to the next person who has a similarly short resume, and that's Link Jarrett, uh, head coach at Notre Dame. Notre Dame is a very hard place to recruit successfully for baseball, and it's evidenced by the fact that their tournament appearances are somewhat rare. Prior to the season, the last time they went to the tournament was in 2015, and Jarrett, in his first season with the team, first full season, brought them to the tournament. Uh, they you know, had a very good season this year. They have some prominent players who are expected to go uh, in the first several rounds of the MLB draft. And that's kind of a guy where if you present him an opportunity to leave a school like Notre Dame, where it's difficult to recruit, and then come to a school like Arizona State, where you have young players and you can recruit well, uh, it is likely a fairly attractive opportunity, as it might be for a guy like Will Bolt, uh, head coach at Nebraska. This is his first full season. Uh, he is the Big Ten coach of the year this year. They reached the uh, regional round. Uh, pushed number one seed, national number one seed, Arkansas, to a final elimination game in the regional round to advance to a super regional. Uh, this is a guy who was a D1 assistant for 11 years, including a five-year stint at Texas A&M before taking over at Nebraska. And so again, you know, the, the length of the resume is fairly short, but what's on there for a guy like Will Bolt, Ben Orloff, even Link Jarrett, uh, it, it has been extremely impressive in their small sample sizes. And wrapping up our categories and our discussion of ASU baseball situation, Chris, is the out of left field category. And for this, we don't have any prospects listed for obvious reasons. Yeah, this, this is just like the unpredictable, you know, what crazy kind of thing could happen, which is maybe they Ray Anderson or or somebody knows 
a former major league player who is was prominent or perhaps there's somebody who's an assistant coach at the major league level who's been doing that for a while and they're interested in some other you know type of a challenge and we just you know we wouldn't be able to really sort of forecast or predict who that might be but we don't want to you know disallow for the, the the possibility of it being someone that would fit in a totally different category than the other five and, and just real quick if i could add uh chris you know we we have evaluated that category to be probably the least likely especially for a program like asu uh like you said it's possible but we do not view it as a likely likely category for candidates at all and so that wraps up our categories for ASU baseball's coaching surge. Make sure you continue to stay up to date on the site at sunlevelsource.com with our coaching hot board. Like Jacob said earlier, it will be revised and updated as the search continues. But before we wrap up this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Chris, we have to talk about ASU football, obviously some big developments in recruiting because the 14-month-long dead period finally ended on May 31st. So the beginning of June marked the beginning of visits and prospects being able to see campuses in person. More importantly, the facilities that these programs have in person also interact with coaches face-to-face. We know ASU had four official visits this past weekend those were four-star interior offensive lineman Deshaun Woods three-star tackle Daughtry Richardson three-star edge defender Michael Ibukunokiyoti and three-star quarterback Connor Harrell and they also had another key unofficial visitor in three-star tight end Caden Helms out of Nebraska as we look forward Chris especially with more visits on the horizon how important is it for ASU to get these guys on campus as well as just the dead period coming to an end well, it's a monumental month. Um, there are a lot fewer top national recruits committed this year than um, last year right. or the year, the year before. And that's because so many of these guys wanted to get on campuses before they made decisions. You know, And uh, we have posted updates on the site on Helms and Woods, both of whom are really highly regarded four-star recruits the two of the top three guys um, in Nebraska's 22 class. Woods would actually be, if he ends up committing to ASU, he'd be the highest ranked uh, ASU offensive line signee or commitment in history on the 24-7 network. Um, so you got to check out that. And then uh, we also have an update on Ibunkin uh, Oyakode, uh, Okayode, and um, – you know, he had positive things to say about the ASU experience. Uh, Connor Harrell, I texted with him a little bit, the quarterback. Um, he's visiting uh, uh, Northwestern officially this weekend. So I think we probably should get an update from him as well on the site. Dr. Richardson's going to Florida State uh, this weekend. There's been a lot of talk that ASU and Florida State have been his top two uh, schools. And you know, that's just five guys. ASU has another uh, six or seven taken official visits this weekend, including Tevin White, four-star running back that ASU has been doing pretty well with. Uh, Colson Loveland is a well-regarded tight end, the number one recruit in Idaho. There's Trevon McAlpine, who's a, a prominent defensive lineman on ASU's board out of Alabama. Elijah Russell's of Florida, uh, edge player, defensive end, who's like six foot seven. And, um, you know, and others. And then beyond that, 
There's some really high-profile recruits coming later on in the month on official visits to Arizona State, which are uh, Jaleel Skinner, who's a national top 100 recruit, uh, tight end wide receiver hybrid out of South Carolina, and Cyrus Moss, who is about as highly regarded as anybody on ASU's board that has a legitimate chance to get um, from Bishop Gorman High School in Vegas. He's an edge player, 6'6", 220, um, one of the best pass rushers in the West. Uh, ASU in Oregon, very prominent in his recruitment, among a few others. So we're going to be covering the heck out of all of this stuff. Uh, we'll have a premium podcast for our members in probably the next week or two that sort of uh, go really into a lot more depth about the, these, some of these recruitments and the timelines for decisions from some of these kids. And um, there's really so much that it's going to be happening this summer with um, recruiting. So uh, I would just tell everybody just to make sure that they're hopping on the site, the Devil Sanctuary, the biggest ASU message board, anywhere and our premium podcast if you love the free ones and make sure you're checking out all the content on the site right and i should highlight that we have our offensive and defensive 2022 recruiting targets overviews both on the site that you can go check out for comprehensive breakdowns of who this who's on the sun devils boards both on offense and defense and should mention as well, Chris, that they've hosted a bunch of 2023 kids on campus too. So it's not just the 2022s who are getting out and seeing campuses in person, but other high profile recruits from other classes as well. Before we wrap this thing up, Chris, any final thoughts, especially uh, considering we also have a new addition to the team and Ethan Ryder. Yeah. Uh, Ethan Ryder's uh, new intern. I'm sure we'll get him here on the podcast shortly. Uh, we have another one that's coming up, uh, his first story, don't want to preempt it by saying, you know, any more details, but another student at ASU who's, uh, an intern whose first story is going to be on the site here in the next day or two as well. So, you know, we're, uh, you know, we haven't had a new influx of Cronkite students in a while and that time is here. So we're looking forward to, you know, adding and fully incorporating them and, um, and, and all of the content that's going to be rolling out. And remember, we're getting really close to, uh, we're, what are we, like two months away or less now from the start of ASU football camp and a really highly anticipated season. So very excited to get back to normal. ASU said that uh, they're going to be having uh, basically full stadium this year for games, or at least that's their plan. That did, you know, huge numbers, our story on that um you know was retweeted by like half the football staff and a lot of players and um so people are pretty geeked up about what's going on right now in in tempe and um we're gonna just be covering it as thoroughly as we possibly can in all formats and ck's intern tree continues to grow but for now that's gonna wrap up this edition of the sun devil source report podcast for staff reporter jacob runner and publisher chris cartman i'm your host mason kern saying so long thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time